Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palenker. In the vast entertainment landscape, how do you mainly learn about something that you absolutely positively have to watch or listen? It's word of mouth, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You trust the opinion of your friends to steer you to something awesome. Well, Media Path wants to be that friend whose opinion you trust. Now, today, Weezy and I are going to suggest our picks about the greatest Sidney Poitier movies that you might not have seen or have ever seen. We're just going to put them in the order that we love them. And then we're going to introduce our guest. I've been looking forward to talking to this guy. For my money, one of the greatest nightclub comics to ever practice the art form, Bobby Slayton, the pit bull of comedy. The only person who actually scares the crap out of the Omicron variant. Mm-hmm. He's going to be here in a couple of minutes. Terrifying. We're going to talk to Bobby. Yeah. First, I'm going to do my top five Sidney Poitier movies. Oh, incidentally, we're also going to discuss the life and times and sweetness and big heart of our friend Bob Saget that we're saying goodbye to today as well. So I'm going to go in reverse order here. This is number five. Number five for me is Patch of Blue. This is a story of an uneducated, blind, white girl who has been befriended by the black man. The black man being who? Sidney Poitier. She falls in love with him, having no idea that he's black. He's a kind-hearted soul, and they find escape in one another's lives. Number four for me is Raisin in the Sun. This is the story of a poor black family, and a substantial insurance payout could end up being a windfall for the family, or it could be the opposite. It could be the seed of their destruction. This is based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning play by Lorraine Hansberry. Poitier plays Walter, a young man who's uh, just trying to find his station in life. I love this movie because it's based on a play, and the language is always richer in a play, and the family tension in this movie is very real. I love it. Number three for me, guess who's coming to dinner? And older couple's attitudes are challenged when their daughter introduces them to her new fiance, who is, guess what? Black. It's Sidney Poitier, along with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn, three titans of American film, a beautiful film. Number two, To Sir With Love. This is where a black teacher from British Guyana ends up as a teacher at a school full of rambunctious white high school students from the slums of London's East End, and Lulu's To Sir With Love, which was a major hit at the time, uh, came from that film. And my number one, In the Heat of the Night, A black Philadelphia homicide detective passes through the racially hostile town of Sparta, Mississippi. Detective Virgil Tibbs, he comes in contact with his main antagonist, racist police chief Gillespie, played by Rod Steiger. I love this movie because it's one of the greatest acting duels between talented guys, in my opinion, in the history of movies. Now, my top three ones. So, In the Heat of the Night, uh, To Serve With Love, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, all came out in 1967. This was just after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So the country was still in the throes of racial turmoil. And these three movies really poked at those issues head on. I think Sidney Poitier is one of the most charismatic, gifted presences in the history of film. I do, too. Did you know, it's a little-known Hollywood fact, the alternate title to uh, In the Heat of the Night is Rod Steiger Chews Gum. 
<laughs> they opted with The Heat of the Night. I think it's a better choice, actually. <laughs> I, I did spend a lot of time watching Sidney Poitier movies over the weekend, Fritz. And mm-hmm. in fact, I watched, and I advise that everyone do this. This is my recommendation of the week. I watched Blackboard Jungle back-to-back with Sir With Love. Now, here's why that's fun to do. Blackboard Jungle is 1955 when the post-war nation was obsessed with the problem of juvenile delinquents. World War II veteran Richard Dottier, played by Glenn Ford, takes a teaching position at a rough New York City high school for boys. The staff warns him that the kids are a bunch of hoodlums, but Dottier remains idealistically purposeful. Oh, they're just misunderstood and they're tough talking until they beat him up in an alley, threaten his wife and try to rape a teacher. It's a boys' school flooded with toxic masculinity. The teacher was asking for it. Even Glenn Ford's wife wants to know what she was wearing. But Sidney Poitier's, <laughs> I know, it's difficult sometimes to watch stuff, that, but you have to place it within the period, right? But Sidney Poitier stands out as a student. This was his eighth film credit, his first being Nightclub Extra in 1947's Sepia Cinderella, which is probably a must-watch. Wow. Uh, so even as an edgy high school tough... He has that regal bearing, and we just believe in him, which is why only 12 years later, into Sir With Love, Sidney Poitier graduates from student to teacher. He is an American, Mark Thackeray, who is seeking a career in engineering while teaching at a rundown London East End school full of ruffians and proper school rejects. Thackeray inspires the kids to treat themselves and each other with respect, which is why they start calling him sir, and they start calling each other with respectful names. Once again, with the misogynistic tropes, there is a fair amount of gender stereotypes and slut-shaming, but placing the film within its historical frame of 1967 will give you the freedom to sloppy sob as Lou sings to Sir with Love over the closing credits. And if you are out in search of shirtless portier, I recommend Lily's of the field in which he happens upon a group of nuns and builds them a church. Yeah, that was a good movie too. I just couldn't include it in my top five. Well, I don't think it makes the top I, I, five. I think honestly, if you if you watch if you watched him with the sound down, mm-hmm. which you could do with in the heat of the night, even his physical movements are perfect. When he's getting ready to get back on the train, and then. Gillespie, the racist sheriff, Rod Steiger has to come and convince him not to go. His making up his mind not to go and just turning around slowly and grabbing his suitcase and walking back to the car was so beautifully done. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's direction or if it's just his natural I think it's, it's posture. Yeah, yeah. The man had excellent posture. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Talented man. Mm-hmm. So before our guest arrives, because yes. I think he stepped well, up he, to feed he, his drug habit or something. He's arrived, but he's just puttering around his house because... And uh, he's got he's a, a leopard print desk chair. Who oh, doesn't... there's a lot going on in that home. I, wow. I got to tell you, it's uh, to by, by uh, way of full disclosure, this home is across the street from <laughs> where we are. Mm-hmm. But like with Omicron, it's like with Bobby Slayton, there's a lot of droplets. So this is a loud man. And uh, he likes to talk. So he is sequestered. We're sequestered. And after the show, we're going to kind of mosey down the street and take some pictures together. All right. Here's your official introduction. Yeah. Bobby Slayton, the Pitbull of Comedy, one of the best club comics ever to practice the business. He had an amazing stand-up career. He ran his own room in Las Vegas for a while, did his own hysterical Showtime special, been on all the TV shows, The Tonight Show, Bill Maher, whatever. Great acting roles in Get Shorty, Ed Wood, Bandits, 
uh, did a really well-written series with a friend of ours, Mike Binder on HBO called Mind of the Married Man, Curb Your Enthusiasm. He played Joey Bishop opposite Ray Liotta and Joe Montaigne in the Rat Pack. I want to ask him about this, too. Did Woody Allen's Amazon project called Crises and Six Scenes? And uh, he's Bobby Slayton. I'm so happy to talk to you, my friend. How are you? Well, well, you know, you guys make it seem like I've done so much. Thank you for dragging that out. You know, um, (laughs) it's funny because, you know, I get your emails all the time about, uh, I guess you guys have been doing this podcast for a couple of years. And I keep thinking, they're going to call me one of these days. I actually wasn't looking forward for you for you calling me at all. I didn't really want to do the podcast. But, you know, when COVID hit, you know, I guess it wasn't just me, but every comedian, I'm sure you guys did this too. Everybody was calling. Since everybody was home, I got all these calls from so many podcasts and so many people. uh, And we wonder what comedians are doing uh, during COVID. That was a big thing. And then we we play this great game. And I go, right, I don't want to play a game. I'm not one of you guys that ever watched Jeopardy. I I played Trivial Pursuit in 1980. I did a line of Coke and stayed up to four in the morning. That was the last time I played a game. I don't want anything to do with these podcasts. And since COVID hit, I go, what do we need to do podcasts for? I have nothing to plug because for years... You know, when I played the comedy clubs, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you probably did well, Fritz, you were on TV, so you didn't really, you know, work the circuit as much. But, you know, you go on the road all the time. You do morning radio. And that was a whole big thing. And since COVID hit, I'm not working. I go, I don't need to do any shows. But I knew you guys would eventually call me because I, you, and I knew you wanted to talk about Saget. And this, this, you know, the same thing when Robin Williams died. After somebody dies, you know, all the podcasts and all the DJs and all the radio people, they wait a day or two and they try to get, you know, Billy Crystal or Steve Martin or important people. And when they can't get any of these people, I get a call a day. See, later that's BS. About the they, they call you yeah. because you were part of the San Francisco mafia of comedy. That's why they called you. You were part right. of the, you know, the incubation period of that, which was Robin Williams. No, but what he's saying is this is like a game of musical chairs, right? You got to be the last guy to die because then you get to talk about. It's all it's about timing. You got to time your death properly. You don't want to die on the same day as Dobie Gillis, unless you're Bob Saget, who thinks that's the funniest thing he's ever done, probably. Well, so, you know, my wife, when my wife passed away six years ago, she died. And then two days later, Patton Oswalt's wife died. Mm-hmm. And of course, Patton was more famous than me, so he got all the press. <laughs> and then Gary Shandling died. And I go, you know, not not that I needed press because of my wife's death. It's not like I could go, hey, you know, I'm playing the funny bone in Atlanta. You know, my wife's dead. It's not like I can parlay my dead wife into a gig. So it didn't really matter. I didn't really need to do any podcasts when that happened. But, uh, but I knew I wouldn't get any press after Patton's wife passed Once away. Once again, Bobby, um, it's, it's timing. It is about timing. Yeah, it's all about timing. And- you know, being in the right place at the right time, which I've, I've never been except for right now, today with you guys. Finally, it worked out. And by the way, mm-hmm. I didn't realize you were broadcasting four doors away from me i would have come down to your house i know you would have but it's just we don't well, when want this all clears up in a couple of years you'll come down you know fritz is just he he may still be contagious he had the COVID all last week bobby you don't want to be sitting next to this guy i'm trying you to keep what? you safe i, I love mind, you i don't mind getting it and i'll tell you why because i you know my girlfriend lives five minutes away we see each other four or five times a week which is great mm-hmm. um but, you know, if I have COVID and I have to sequester myself for five, ten days, it'd be a nice excuse to catch up <laughs> a lot of shows she doesn't want to see. Oh, oh well, that, see, timing. So again. let me tell you my first exposure to the pit bull of comedy. Uh-oh. So I think it was like 1982. Did this get violent? And they used to have the L.A. comedy competition. 
Right. And it was stupid right. to call it the L.A. Comedy Competition because all the great comics in the world that lived in San Francisco, Bobby Slayton, Dana Carvey, uh, Paula Poundstone, uh, Ryan Reynolds, would all come down here in one of Bobby's antique cars. They would, oh, blow, the, they would blow the doors off the comedy competition, kill the five to ten spots, and then get in their car and leave and go back up to San Francisco. You guys used to kill that thing because you were the best comics in the world. And I had... You said one of my anti cars, like I'm Jay Leno. I had one, I had a 1954 Chevy, which was my only car, which is, you know, it's a great car to have when you're Jay Leno and you have 10 other cars and you can actually <laughs> change the oil or fix the light. Uh, you know, I, you know when you live in San Francisco with a car that can barely make it up a hill and, uh, you know, barely make it down the five, uh, it got like 20 feet a gallon. It wasn't the most practical car to have. I remember it was cool looking though. It shined real good. I can't believe you remember that. No, I I worked with you at the Laugh Stop in Encino, and you were going to do a show, but you were standing out in the parking lot being protective of your car until you went on. This oh, big I, shiny... I don't remember any of this. Now, but I believe... here's, now, here's the first conversation I had with you. It was in the green room at the Comedy of Magic Club. And I said, well, you guys come down. I can't believe down. you remember, you oh, remember no. the year. You the... remember my car. No, it was what... a very, I don't want to say a traumatizing experience, but it was fun. <laughs> but but I, I said, you know, why did you guys come down here? First prize in the comedy competition was like 25 bucks. You know, one night they would do it at the Ice House, and the next night they do it at Comedy of Magic Club. And I was talking to you about it. And, and I, I was dazzled at how many good comics there were in San Francisco. And he said, because San Francisco supports the arts and you can grow as a comic up there. And you told me it was costing you money to come down here because the, the top five or six working comics could make a living in San Francisco, a couple thousand dollars a week without even right. having to leave town, which I thought was amazing. That was a lot of money at the time. You know, you, you, know, you talk about right timing. The only time in my life I was ever in the right place at the right time, and I was just lucky, was when that whole comedy boom. And Fritz, you, you seem to know the years. But in the late 70s, early 80s, when comedy started taking off and every city was opening a comedy club, San Francisco had like four or five. Well, the best, four, Holy City well, Zoo, um, all those great clubs up there. And there's also one-nighters. So you, you could drive and make 100 bucks, 500 bucks, whatever, you know, at the time, it was a lot of money. So every night, you could you could probably work six, seven nights almost every night. So and you, you can make two, three, four thousand. Are you getting more stage time because you can hit more clubs per night? Yeah, but now, uh, you know, people are saying to me now, you know, anyway, I always get young comics asking me for advice. And mm -hmm. I go, look, I never did anything right. I can't give you advice. I, I never, I, I think when I started out, I don't know about you guys, but you just got up and you did it. There was no no formula there were no rules there was no you know <laughs> guidelines there was no pamphlet you know not people comedy classes and now the only time you can watch a comic and see how anybody did it was maybe to watch a tonight show with merv griffin now there's a million netflix specials there's a million comics there's youtube so not only can you watch how to do it but at the same time i think the negative thing is it's all been done already i see comics now doing things that comics of our generation and maybe the generation before it's all been done. You know, it's it's almost like music. You know, I, I've heard it already. And I'm mm. not saying there's not room for new comics. You see a lot of good people, but I think it's tougher now than ever to do yeah. stand -up. To be unique, yeah. yeah. And, and you, you were starting in San Francisco at a time when 
the comics had to go on strike to get paid down here in 1980 right, or whatever it was. That. But you guys were being paid in San Francisco, right? So we had to go on strike to get like a $25 tip at the comedy right. store down here, which kind of kept a damper on the growth of comedy and the growth of performers getting better down here. Yeah, but they, that strike didn't go on for very long. Did it? it wasn't only like a no, month No, but or it something. was the attitude of the club owners, you know, and it, it was, it, they were spoiled. Right. But the point was, is that all of us, you know, Kevin Meany, Bob Goldthwait, Paul Poundstone, Dana Carvey, Kevin Pollack, we all had to move down to L.A. You know, at the same time, there were Boston comics. It was like, mm -hmm. you know, the opposite end of the country. Yep. There were guys from Boston. They eventually had to come to L.A. And all the New York comics who, you know, San Francisco had a nice little comedy scene. But New York was really where, you know, Richard Belzer, Elaine yes. Boozer, Jerry Seinfeld, Mark Schiff, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, all of them, you know, mm -hmm. um, that was the biggest, even they had to come to LA. You know, this was the place that everybody finally came to. And had yeah, to there, there are little local nuggets like Boston had a Supreme, Lenny Clark and all those guys, Stephen Wright, right, right. were really good. And New York, obviously, you really had to know what you were doing in New York. But they all ended up coming out here because the talk shows were out here. Carson was and out look here. Look where we all are now. Doing yeah, we are, this right, right across the street. So I... Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a tribute to Bob Saget right now. I, I was the MC at the Laugh Factory during, I guess, late 90s, early early 2000s. Bob Saget was uh, one of the comics that frequented that club, and I spent a lot of time with him. I introduced him like hundreds of times, but so it was an interesting phenomenon to, to observe. When Bob took the stage, everyone was excited to get to see their favorite TV dad in person, but then Bob lodged into his act. And the look on people's faces was as if Ward Cleaver had walked up to them and cracked a bunch of fart jokes and then told them that his balls itch. Folks went from shocked to delighted, and if they weren't able to make that shift, Bob was like, you can either get on board with this or not because I am going to continue. And then he'd talk about how on America's Funniest Videos, a monkey stuck his finger in his butt, sniffed it, and then fell out of a tree. And this was Bob Saget in real life. It was something else to watch people get with the program on who Bob was going to be on stage. It didn't take long. It was uh, quite a ride. I call it the Skip Stevenson syndrome. Okay. Do you remember him and his fame? I remember Skip. Skip was a comedy store guy, and I remember him, of course, when he was on Real People. Yeah, he was on Real People. It was the same syndrome as okay. Saget. That he had this real scrubbed American, you know, unoffensive mcdonald's type character because he had this sort of platonic sexual tension with sarah purcell and they were real cute about it and everything <laughs> and when he was in a club he went out of his way to make people understand that this was not the real him and it got so bad especially when he was full on into blow he would not only offend people <laughs> he would clear the room i saw him in the ice house literally blow an entire 180 person audience out the door they couldn't stand it anymore so he just had this thing where he refused to allow people to accept that he was that nice guy that was his tv persona and saget does the same thing you know but he thing. didn't he never walked a room he never walked a room there was people oh, no. like damon wayans that would well, no, walk he didn't a room. have a cocaine habit and just scare people <laughs> no bob was always like appropriately naughty i mean it was you'd be spitting up a lot of beverages but you know nobody was walking out i mean the guy I was love, just too delightful yeah i love watching saget you know it was funny because i i didn't watch a lot of comics i wasn't at the improv or the comedy store that much because like i said i was on the road so when i was home i'd like to stay home but i would go to the comedy magic club 
And it was always like watching, I'd like to watch Bob and I'd like to watch Gilbert Godfrey, not so much to watch them Mm -hmm. as much as I love both of them, but it's to watch the audience when they didn't know. Like, okay, I I haven't done stand-up for a while. And about six months ago, I took a gig in Vegas, opening up for Gilbert Godfrey. I wanted to get back into stand-up. I hadn't worked for a while. And everybody coming to that show knew Gilbert. Mm -hmm. But in the old days... Before they knew him, they would just go to a comedy club. And like you said, Wheezy, you go see Saget. He was Ward Cleaver. They knew him from Full House, America's Funniest Videos, whatever. Such a clean-cut guy. I would love to watch. Because some of the audience would know what they were in for. But so many of them. Mm -hmm. It was so funny to watch their faces. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was the best part. Everybody loved to watch the audience watching Saget. Exactly. I think Saget loved it, too. He had the best view of the audience. And he just delighted in it. And it's just like it. He was not going to be derailed. This is my act, no. and this is what I'm doing, and this is what I find funny. And you know, I'm a great guy, so get with this. And they and they usually did. I I don't remember anybody kind of like complaining or asking for their money back. It was just like, oh my god, can you believe what he said? Danny Tanner just said. Well, it takes guts. Your act takes guts. Did you start out being the energy level and your your attitude on stage, or did you, you grow know, into that? Oh, that pit bull of comedy mm-hmm. thing, you know. The way it all started, when I started doing stand, I actually have somewhere this little cassette tape of my first time on stage. And of course, like everybody, it was abominable. Um, <laughs> if I, I, mean, I haven't listened to it in years, but if I listen back to it now, it's probably okay for a 21-year-old guy in the 70s that was never on stage and didn't watch a lot of comedy, you know, <laughs> but it, it was pretty bad, as I recall. And my first couple of times at Norm Crosby's comedy shop, I was pretty bad. But every comic, you know, was not great when they started, except mm-hmm. for maybe a Dave Chappelle, you know, a few guys like that mm-hmm. who happened to be just, you know, these enigmas who happened to be terrific comedians. But um, I got that whole thing because I used to open up for rock and roll bands in San Francisco. There was a club, the big club in San Francisco was the Punchline Comedy Club that the late great Bill Graham, the promoter, uh, rock promoter owned. And next door, it was a big nightclub uh, where Warren Zevon would play, Little Steven and whatever, the Four Tops, Tower of Power, Ray Charles. And they would use comedians to open up. And Dana Carvey would open up and Kevin Pollack would open up a little, Bob Sarlat would open up. But when you had to open up for some punk band like the Stranglers or <laughs> Meet DeVille or the Tubes, they would call me. Oh. <laughs> Ghostbusters. Not that I would do well, but I, it was like riding a mechanical bull. I knew if I could stay on for 10 minutes, I knew I was going to get thrown off and have a concussion. But if I could stay on for 10 minutes and make my 50 bucks, I did my job. And if I could get people not to throw shit at me, it was going to be okay. So it was a defense mechanism that put you into that frame of mind. On it stage. became kill or be killed. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, that's how it kind of started. And also, you know, the the the, the, the little the alcohol, and I never did massive amounts of cocaine, but you did a little coke, you had a shot of vodka, you you know, you had that whole (laughs) punk rock, rock and roll mentality, and that, you know, rebel, and and that Lenny Bruce, and, you know, kind of get them before they get you kind of thing. Yeah, and it probably, you know, and it's probably very exhilarating when you can pull it off and come off stage and be like, like, I nailed that. That probably feels like you're flying. It was great. You know what? There, there were. T- I look. I opened up for people like Ray Charles and Tower Power, Warren Zevon, where the audience was now not there to see the comic, but as long as your name was on the marquee and they knew they were going to. And I was kind of getting a little bit of a name in the Bay Area. So if you could do okay, you know, mm-hmm. 
like you said, if you can do your 15 minutes, get five minutes of laughs, 10 minutes of them, just get quiet. That's fine. And then not, then yeah, it's, it's great because they're not in a comedy club and they're not there to see you. So it, it's a comedy club. They're there to laugh. And it's great when you make them laugh, but when they have no idea you're going to be on the bill and they're, they're not there to see you at all and you can get them. Yeah. Like you said, yeah, I think there's a, extra little bit of, uh, you know, pleasure in doing that. Yeah, Steve work. Martin said that's the worst thing about being a stand-up is opening for like a rock and roll band or something that doesn't care about you. He said you right. just have to have a hearty self-esteem to pull that off. Yeah. And Albert Brooks did that famous routine opening for Richie Havens where people timed their drugs for the headliner. <laughs> every, comic, every comic has horror stories about comedy clubs and bachelorette parties and being drunk and the three shows on Saturday, but opening for a rock band. So that's where that whole aggressive thing happened, you know? And also I'm like, look, right now I'm 66 years old. I'm, I just got hearing aids. I'm, I'm more relaxed than I've ever been. I haven't done cocaine in years, but no, even like in the middle of the afternoon. So back then, when you're trying to make a name for yourself and prove, like Jake LaMotta, you didn't get me down. You didn't get me down, right? <laughs> Plus, it was different. It was different. It made you stand out from the rest of the pack. Right. Well, I was, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I guess, you know, I'm not going to call myself an original because there were certainly oh, yeah. guys before me. But, but you know, it was, yeah, I made a name for myself doing that. And I was very proud of it. It was good. You know, there are people who are better. There are people who are worse. And who, who's that head? Get out of the picture. Who's she's trying worse? to take your picture. That's our producer. Body. She can do whatever she wants. Now, she's taking your picture. You, yeah, she's taking your picture. And you need more light on your face if you can make that happen. Like, just... I don't know. Make, make more light. You know, why don't you just come to my house and take a picture? <laughs> Bobby. <laughs> you know what? Here, here's what they, I don't know how to do. Okay. So one reason I really hate doing podcasts is that, okay, I do this in my office. I shut my home phone off. My home phone... Doesn't ring for days, except when I do a podcast. <laughs> and I don't have the light worked out exactly. You know, the other thing about podcasts, which is funny, now that people are always doing interviews on television, you realize how fucking ugly people's homes are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Somebody, you ever know that you're talking to somebody, you, go, you have such an ugly house. Yeah, it's like this Home Depot kind of, you know, this, where do you decorate? Like, it looks like your, your grandmother's house. You know, you, you know, you, you just, you officially uh, retired just before the pandemic, didn't you? I mean, that was, or, or is it the gigs dropped off and you decided to announce that was your retirement point? Well, I don't know if I retired or they retired me. It's <laughs> like, you can't fire me because I quit. <laughs> <laughs> but so you didn't subject yourself to the Zoom comedy experience of the last two years, no, which no, is like surgery lucky. without anesthesia. It's the worst no, thing. You know, I was very, very lucky because here, here's what happened. Look, it is nothing to do. I'm not bitter about this. You know, when I, when I stopped right before COVID, the comedy scene changed tremendously. Netflix, young comics, all my fans, but few fans I had, either died or retired or moved to Florida or didn't give a shit about comedy clubs anymore, DUIs, bachelor parties, urban crowds, whatever it is. Nobody, I look, I don't want to go out. You want, what are, I don't want to watch any comedy, but if I want to, I could sit in my bed with my 80 inch television and watch comedy. Precisely. And everybody, oh, it's like being out. I don't want to be out with some asshole on his phone next to me and some idiot, you know, knocking over his drinks and some bitch complaining about her food. And I don't want to be around. So I think comedy took a different turn. At the same time, I was getting sick of doing this shit. Yeah. You know, I, I hit my 60s and I, I was making money doing radio commercials and a few TV shows. So 
like I said, you can't fire me. I quit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the last time I worked was two years ago when Bill Maher took me and Sarah Silverman to Hawaii. And we did a great show. And I could see why Bill Maher still likes to work. You know, when you're flying a private jet and you're making six figures for a night and you're staying in a Ritz-Carlton, yeah, I guess comedy could be pretty good. <laughs> you know? But why guys like Seinfeld and, 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 and Bill still do it, obviously they love it because they certainly don't need the money. I get tired of working the clubs and I never made it to that level. I am thrilled. People say, what do you do all day? If I'm not playing my drums, I'm making these guitars. If you come over, you got to see these. Okay. Um, you you got to see what I'm, it's kind of my hobby now. And, you know, I, I, I read books and I watch television. I'm happy not doing anything. I love Good. doing nothing. Love it. I, I would love to hear some stories of hecklers or you kind of like uh, being confronted by somebody who was offended by perhaps something that you said in your act. Oh, my God. Where do I begin? I don't even know. I don't even know either. I mean, look, you know, it's <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, there were times when I went over the line. But, but you know, there, there were guys like um, um, Bill Hicks, who opened for me when he was a young kid. Bill Hicks opened for me, it was like 17, 18. We, we shared a couple of condos together. And Bill, I remember, would go out of his way to offend people. He'd walk a whole room. He would like to do it. And I, I think Sam Kennison would like to do it. I never wanted to walk people, but if somebody got offended, I went out or, or, or heckled me. I went out of my way. Sometimes they'd shut up and I'd go, that's not enough. Like, you know, like if you stole my wife's purse and I caught you and I kicked you, I would beat you till you were dead. And I would do that to another member. You started it, I'm going to finish it. But there were nights when I did nothing. And people just, look, and you know now with the woke culture, as they call it, right. people are more offended than any, by, by it's, it's mind-boggling now. Um, a couple of times I went to the improv in the last year just to dabble and see if I could still do it. And a third of the audience was young kids and they were shocked that the material was really nothing Nothing that you guys would be offended by. But people, and then other people, I think, find it refreshing. Oh, my God, I can't believe he said that. He made a gay joke. He made a black joke. You know, he made, you know. And, and, and so, so, like, a lot of the audience likes it, and a few people are offended. But there were times where, you know, I mean, bachelorette parties are notorious. I mean, Fritz, I mean, you, were, you know, you've worked bachelorette parties. and you know, No. Was, one, no. I, but I used to do a lot of jokes about my wife and a lot of jokes about women and these and, you know, and sometimes they would run out in tears, you know, and I wouldn't feel bad. I, would, I thought I was trying to help them. I That's wonder, if, they, to help. I wonder <laughs> if anybody I, second I thought my, their decision. Yeah, my act was like a tough love program. That's, that's <laughs> I felt that about my act. It was like boot camp for marriage. Well, so, Seinfeld said that everything is so politically correct. Now, he won't do college campuses. And if Seinfeld won't do college campuses, you know we are too politically correct right now. I remember reading that story about it, but I don't know if Seinfeld has done college campuses for years, you know, um, because he's busy playing Caesars for half a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, that might be it. With the last time Seinfeld really played college campuses. But, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and Chris Rock said the same thing. I remember that story, but um, I haven't done that in many, many years. But Wheezy, you asked if, if, if I may call you Wheezy. Like, here we go with Miss Wheezy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there were nights where people... You know, the Comedy Magic Club, the most politically correct club in the country, right. Mike Lacey, who owns the club, yep. and, and Fritz, you know, you've played there many times. For years, he wouldn't use me because um, I, I offended a woman one night. And um, years later, he put me on. I think I was doing a benefit for my daughter's school. And Mike says, oh, my God, you're like George Carlin. You're like Money Bruce. I didn't realize how funny you are. you got to come back. <sighs> but he wouldn't put me on a Saturday night when his regulars were there. He would put me on the Friday Late Show. And his cousin, this idiot woman, 
who ran the place had signs on every table. This guy is very funny, but he's very offensive. And I'm going, first of all, I don't think you need it on every table. It's overkill. And by the time people are in the club, it's a little late for this. You know, so, Why not just put it in the menu, like after every oh, item, man. you know? Just... It was great. I mean, I love stuff like that. I thought it was great. But do you but, remember uh, ever being followed to your car or being threatened or, you know, anything, anyone you had to talk down just to uh, kind of like escape with your life? Well, actually, you know what? Not as much as I you would think, mm-hmm. you know? There were there, there was one night I mean, there was one night in New Orleans or Baton Rouge, but many many years ago, Harris Pete, I think the doorman who was at the comedy mm-hmm. store was opening up for me. We're going back 30, 35 years before I was married, you know. And there was a table of uh, angry lesbians, like there's any other card. That used to be one of my jokes. Oh my goodness! I'm sure you can <laughs> we're going to need to put a card on the table. If you're listening to this podcast, please put a card on your own table. <laughs> you want to know something? I found out years later that lesbians became my biggest fans and they were the coolest people because they'd been through enough crap. But back then when the gays were fighting the good fight, I couldn't make fun of them. Mm-hmm. But um, so anyway, these four women were so pissed. And after the show, they came backstage and they said, Bobby, you better wait in the dressing room. These four women are waiting for you. And of course, I did a few lines of coke, a few vodkas, and I was ready to fight. <laughs> you don't want to go out there, Bobby. And they were waiting. So they called the Baton Rouge Police Department to give me an escort to my car. And I was saying to the cops, come on, we got to take these lesbians. Come on, we can... <laughs> but, but, you know, that really didn't happen very often. Um, Speaking you know, about not... that same topic, the LGBTQ topic, what about Chappelle's current turmoil that he finds himself in? What's your opinion about that whole thing? Well, what's very funny is two years ago, and not that I took it from Chappelle, Chappelle I did that exact same joke uh, for, for like a year about the, um, 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 what was the joke about? The pussy, the... Uh, I forgot, I forgot the joke already, but then she pelted on a special. It wasn't an impossible joke to think of. We got so much crap for it. Um, what was the joke? I don't even remember now. It's been so much that didn't stand up. All I remember um, is that he was saying something about trans people. That's, yeah, the, that's really, the current yeah. thing. It's yeah. the trans. But you know what? And then look, I, I loved Dave Chappelle with a passion. I thought his special was great, a little preachy, but great. But you want to know something? When I started doing stand-up in San Francisco, the reason I got so much shit was for the exact same reason when I was 22 years old is that the gay movement was just starting out. You know, I, I started in San Francisco in the early 70s. So the hippie movement was kind of winding down, ending the Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, and the whole gay movement, you know, before AIDS was starting to be big. So it was that, it was hippie, gay kind of transition. And I remember there was a black comedy night in Oakland. There was a gay comedy night in the Castro district. Then there were gay comics making fun of straight people and black comics making fun of white people. And at 22, I said, wait a second, that's fine. You can make fun of me, but I can't make fun of you. I can't do gay jokes. And they weren't, and pardon my term, faggot jokes. They weren't Sam Kennison AIDS jokes. They weren't mean. They were gay jokes. And 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 gay people got so mad at me. And there was this whole anti-Bobby Slate thing in San Francisco. Oh, he's making fun of queer people. Well, you're making fun of me. Why can't I make fun of you? Mm-hmm. It was nothing mean or vicious. But the more they came down on me, no pun intended, the more I came down on them. Well, and it has to do with that. Comments, you know, I never use the N-word on stage, but white people do this. White people do that. You know, well, I, let me tell you, black people don't shut them in movie theater. And so well, the because- first comic to do that joke, you can't shut the fuck up in a movie theater. And people, <laughs> oh, my God. But for the most part, and even black people found it funny. But mm-hmm. there was that one aspect that, you know, the militant, radical, gays, blacks. So if you're going to give me shit, I'm just going to give it back to you. So the whole point was Dave Chappelle 
the trans people are the same way. I think there's only like 30 of them. And they, they talk so much, it seems like there's a, there's a million of these people. <laughs> No, there's, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot more than you realize. First of all, there's a lot of people that have taken that to their graves and lived an unhappy life because of it. No, I know. The I, other I understand. thing, Bobby, is that it has to do with something called a power dynamic, which is that if you're more powerful in society, you don't get to make fun of people who, with you know, in in terms of some sort of kind of. I get it. I chart. Get it. No, but but I, then I, the big question is, who determines who has more power? Dave Chappelle. Or the trans community. So these are where that's where it gets confusing. But I guess what he said was disrespectful and using a term that the trans community doesn't even want people to know. But if exists. you watch his special, he apologizes to trans people for 15 minutes before he right. and he and right. he befriended and he told this great story about letting this inexperienced trans comic open form in San Francisco. Remember that? Exactly. He was he was really nice about it. And then he just said something at the end that really pissed everybody off. It was oh, look, I think, look, look, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to get any traffic. I think most trans people, and I can't speak for the trans community, I think most of them find it very funny or didn't really care. But there are a few people that get very offended. The same thing happened to me. And mm -hmm. okay, look, if I was one of them, if I was trans or I was gay or I was black in the 70s, you know, you know, you know, I can see why people hate police and I can see why people are offended and I can see why people are touchy. I get it. I get, you know, I do get it. I really do. But that's why I'm glad I'm not doing stand up anymore because I don't want to have to walk that line yeah. and apologize or explain. Yeah, it's um, quite a, quite a tricky, yeah. tricky needle to yeah. thread. So we would love to hear you tell some jokes that you've retired because they're completely offensive in today's culture. <laughs> Well, I wish you would have given me a heads up on this. <laughs> well, first of all, I've retired totally, so it's kind of water under the bridge. I don't, um, there is nothing that I retired before I quit. And when I did, um, you know, I did a, a, a corporate gig, mm -hmm. one little corporate gig a few months ago, but it was, it was for a bunch of guys in Vegas. So, you know, everything goes. Right. But there was nothing, if I had to go back and do my act now, I would still do exactly what I did before. I remember your uh, closing joke 40 years ago at the Comedy of Magic Club. You closed with your stamp-licking joke, which was hysterical. I saw oh it 50 God. times. It made me laugh my ass off. Oh, it was the pap test stamp? Yeah, the, the, the stamp oh, thing. We, that, that was, was uh, like yeah, that wasn't an offensive joke. No, I, I, no, I didn't say it was offensive. I was just one that I remembered from your act that you always killed with at those comedy competitions. I carried a stamp in my wallet which celebrated the pap test, and I said I couldn't bring myself to lick this and put it on an envelope, which was reminiscent <laughs> of the Chevy Chase joke. It wasn't, I didn't take it from him, but the joke that he did about a stamp honoring prostitution. Remember that joke? Right. It's a 10 cent stamp. Alan's why Bell wrote it, but if you want to lick it across the corner. Right. Uh, similar licking stamp joke sure, but, um, sure. of this the genre i retired um or would retire now um i had one joke about uh you know um, um about uh, you know jenner caitlin jenner but it was nothing i found offensive and you know and so many people have done jokes about that already it's probably old news i didn't remember what the joke was um so yeah there's nothing that I would retire. Maybe no, because again, there's nothing I found in my act that I thought was offensive. And I didn't do things to offend people. I did things I thought were funny. Mm -hmm. And if it offended people, you fuck them, you know? Just I mean, that simple. And you, I, I think you have to have that attitude to have the career that you've had because, you know, you've got to be kind of just 
fearless to get out there and just like, this is what I think is funny. This is who I am. This is my personality. You're here. You paid money. Sit down, relax, enjoy yourself. I'm Bobby Slayton. Good night. So, you know, you got to be that guy. I, I, you know, a lot of people would be too sensitive or would be too worried about hurting somebody's feelings, but you, your intentions were never to hurt anyone's feelings. Your intentions were never. to entertain them. Never. And if, if, if a trans person or a black person got offended, I, I, I would feel bad because I never did that to, you know. But I feel like, Fritz, you asked me about Dave Chappelle, it's the same thing. He did what he thought was funny. I thought that special was brilliant. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and I, all the controversy just seemed so ridiculous, especially with all the crap that's going on in the world, the fact, with global warming and, and Trump was president at the time. And, all, and it's like the world's going to hell in a handbasket and all these wars and famine and, and COVID. And really, you're going to worry about him doing a joke about transgender people. Okay, so whatever. earlier in your career, before you got the guts to do it on stage for the first time, who were the people that made you want to try this? Before I started doing stand-up? Yeah, I mean, who, who did you look up to? You know, I don't know about you guys, but when I started doing stand-up, you know, if you talk to most comics, and again, I don't know about you two, but I never wanted to do stand-up when I was younger. You, know, you always hear these interviews. Oh, when I was young, I would watch, you know, I would watch whatever, you know, Buddy Hackett, and, and I'd watch Ed Sullivan, and I'd watch, uh, you have black comics, or I'd watch Eddie Murphy, and I wanted to be a comic. I never crossed my mind to ever be a comic until I went to the Holy City Zoo one night in San Francisco and did it. So I never thought about it, but the people who made me laugh, okay, I'm 66. So in the 60s, people that made me laugh, I guess from Ed Sullivan, was watching Rodney Dangerfield. Mm -hmm. I'm watching the Smothers Brothers, who I love with a passion. Mm -hmm. You know, Lenny Bruce was before my time. Mort Saul, in 16, 17, I certainly didn't get that. Um, you know, but I watched, uh, I grew up with a lot of, Robert Klein was the guy. Oh, yeah, he was my man. He and Carlin were the two guys for me. Well, I, I, If you talk to most Jewish comics my age, who were in their teens and early 20s, it was Klein, yeah. and more of the Catholic Christian comics, it was Carlin, mm -hmm. and to the black comics, it was Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the next generation of black comics, I think a lot of them will tell you it was Eddie Murphy, mm -hmm. and then Chris Rock, and then, you know. So I think we all had, I mean, I loved them all, but I think that the guy... As a semi-adult in my teens, it was Robert Klein. Absolutely. And, and if you look at the uh, the the growth of the New York comedy scene with Carolines and the comic strip, guys like uh, Seinfeld, Larry Miller, uh, uh, Paul Reiser, they are nothing but offshoots of Robert Klein. They're Robert doing Klein. Robert Klein's act with a slight twist. Right. And, and I, I don't mean like, to insult them, but you hear it in their cadences and their and their right. patterns. It's it's very Robert. It's, and the same thing happened with Letterman, where you take a lot of male comics would just take on those patterns because they were so engaging. Yeah. Well, and those guys will admit it. They they, yeah. they talk yeah. about how that would. And you know what? Even though it doesn't sound that they like him, Jay Leno loved Klein. Mm -hmm. You know, there was Klein, and it was David Brenner who became a good friend of mine. Who I I, I love Brenner. It was you know these. You straight white Jewish New York monologist who I can identify with, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, so those were the guys that I loved the most. Yeah. yeah. I never thought about doing it, but I, I remember uh, the first time I ever saw stand-up. Who did you watch? You watched like Willard Scott to get into like uh, weather? <laughs> you like have to do watch Willard Scott go, oh, I got to yeah. get some weight. I said, man, I, if I could wear a bow tie like that. Come on, I think it's going to rain today. <laughs> and, uh, and then you go no. out and 
I mean, for my stand-up desire, I didn't even, I, I never, I never had, my self-esteem wasn't hardy enough to think I could ever do it myself. But when I was a junior in high school, I think, or a senior, somebody bought me tickets. On the East Coast, they used to have these things called music fairs. Buffalo had one called the Melody, Melody Fair. Melody Fair. And in California, or in uh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, they had the Valley Forge Music Circus. This was like a right. Cirque du Soleil tent with 3,000 right. seats, and it was a beautiful venue. So somebody bought me tickets to see George Carlin. I, I never seen stand-up. I didn't know the tricks that it takes you a couple of years to sort of build this. But this guy stood on stage and for an hour and a half it, it told in such a matter-of-fact way these wonderful stories, never looking at notes and everything. And honest to God, it was like a religious experience for me. I said, how can somebody do that? And I was mesmerized by him. So he was my conversion to really. He was, a, yeah, he was before I started doing stand-up, I went to see him, too. You know, I was a doorman. Before I started doing stand-up at 21, I was a doorman at a club called The Boarding House in San Francisco. Yep, where Robin, before he was Robin, opened up for Melissa Manchester. And Steve Martin played there a lot with the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Man. Uh, you know, they, they would open up for him. And I, I watched them. Still never thought about doing stand-up. And then Henny Youngman came in <laughs> for a week. Uh, uh, his, you know, one-liners from the old Borch Borch yeah. Cat days. And I'm watching him, and again, none of them were role models for me. I never, I never watched Robin or, or Steve Martin or, or you know, Andy Abadou. I just, I want to be one of these guys. They made me laugh, but it never crossed my mind to do it. Mm -hmm. And fact, I went to a party one night. That's how I started doing stand-up. Went to a party one night and started doing Hedy Eggman's jokes. <laughs> I was 21 years old. Somebody Cover said, act. hey, there's a book called the Holy City Zoo. You should try stand-up. So I wrote five minutes of material. Not one-liners, take my wife, please kind of stuff, but... Awful stuff, like I said earlier. <laughs> well, let me um, ask. Let me ask both of you. What, if it, you're 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 12 years old, you're 15 years old. Do your friends describe you as funny? Yeah, yeah, mine did. Yeah. I mean, it was the only yeah, way I, I got attention. I was bad yeah, in I was athletics. Class clown. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, I was that really unhealthy. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was me. So that means that when you saw stand up, it wasn't that foreign to you. It wasn't such a leap to kind of imagine. Oh, I could take what I am naturally and sort of craft it into an act. This is something I, I could get paid for this yeah. and do it for an hour and a half, and nobody says shut up. That would be <laughs> <clears throat> Every April Fool's Day, I went out to the local joke store. And I bought, you know, the fake vomit, fake doggy oh. too. <laughs> that wasn't really stand up. <laughs> so it, was it wasn't being, a strong closer, was, it but it, it worked. You know? Yeah, I always, yeah, the, the joy buzzer. None, none of my tricks or jokes really ever seemed to fool anybody. The fake vomit. And, yeah, um, I bought the fake vomit really worked, too, Bobby. But I tried. Uh, like I saw a kid at camp with the fake vomit. And I'm like, where did you get that? It's like it becomes a desirable item, you know. And uh, what were some of the other things that I just, you know, of course it was a, I guess they call it a whoopee cushion, but you know, the thing that farts oh, when yeah. you sit down. I had to have that. Had to have the buzzer. Yeah, you could send yeah. away at the end of the comic books, right? There was stuff you could send away for, that was yeah. just kind of amusing. The Johnson Smith catalog sent away for everything. You know, I, I talked to George Wallace one time, and he said. The hardest he's ever worked in his life was running his own room in Las Vegas, which you have experience doing. You had Hooters. What hotel was that in? Oh, my God. Hooters was at Hooters. No, so I, it wasn't part of like a, you know, a main hotel or something. It wasn't a Hooters restaurant. It was a Hooters hotel. 
Oh, oh okay. Hooters has a but anyway, but, but 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 am I right about that? He said because what happens is they give you a budget, you have to buy your own advertising, you have to hire your own acts, you have to hire the stage crew. It's a really hard job, and well, only a small portion of it is actually performing. I'll tell you quickly what happened with me, and it was a godsend. I was working the clubs. This is ten years ago. You know, work was drying up again. I wasn't on television a lot. I mean, I was working, but I was playing horrible comedy club at Hooters wanted to put entertainment into their hotel. Their hotel was right off the strip. And it was on a corner. We had the MGM Grand. <clears throat> across from you had New York, New York. And across from that, you had the Luxor. So Caraton was at the Luxor. New York, New York either had the Roseanne Bar or Louis Anderson. And over the MGM Grand, every week was either a boxing match, Robin Williams, David Copperfield, Louis Black. And I'm off the strip. And it's a Hooters hotel. So right there, I have two strikes against me. <laughs> but what I got was something that no comic in my generation ever had. Rita Rudner was the first comic of our generation to go into Vegas. I mean, there were all the Vegas comics, you know, the Buddy Hackett, Don Rickles, you know, the Rat Pack. But of our generation, to have their own room, Rita was the first one. Mm -hmm. And her husband, Martin, who was an advertising brilliant. Yeah, I know, guy. I know those guys. Is he, yeah, he was a great, great guy. And, 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 um, Rita went in there with this great act that was perfect for Vegas, and they did all this PR work, and then George Wallace, I think, was the second one to go in. And then again, like I said, Louis Anderson went in, and, and you know, there were all these comedians, you know, Seinfeld would be playing, and George Carlin, and, you know, you know, Bill Cosby, whatever. So there was always something going on in that town, and it was crazy. So when Hooters hired me, they actually gave me a salary. And none of, okay, George Wallace and none of those guys got a salary. They went for a piece of the door, had to do their own advertising, had to put themselves in their own, you know, hotel and pay for their rent. And Hooters, for some reason, and I don't know how I worked this out, but <laughs> the, the guys sh shined out on me. They gave me this room, and I, I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but it was not a great room, <clears throat> but I fixed it up. And I went out, and George Wallace and Rita Rudner's husband said to me, look, you know, I don't know what to tell you, there's so much competition in this town now it's going to be hard to put asses in the seats go to the concierges give them free tickets so every day i would go to concierges and i would go all the hotels and not only give them free tickets but i got the press to like me give me some nice reviews and one day i came up with this brilliant plan i thought look you know they call me the pit bull of comedy i wonder if i send away if they i bet you some company makes chocolate dog shit and i went on the internet and Fake they made fun. chocolate dog shit Okay. And I took away for all this chocolate dog shit. I went to Michael's Arts and Crafts Supply and I put those little Chinese takeout boxes, which only had bones on them. And I put in that, that Easter grass. I put in that grass, oh, chocolate Lord. dog shit, and two tickets for my show, and a little review. And I went to every concierge, and I got a lot of press for this, for the chocolate dog shit. And, uh, people told me it was actually really good. And <laughs> so anyway, I, I started getting these really nice reviews. And then I decided, it's on, part, some of this is on my website. I'm there's no way I can compete with David Copperfield and these big, beautiful hotels and Rita Runder and Frank Sinatra, whoever was playing in town. Mm -hmm. So I needed a really good opener. And I had Hooters paid for this. I had every comic playing Vegas in the next month do a little one-minute video for me. And I wound up having a 15-minute video of Robin Williams, Jay Leno, the Smothers Brothers, David Brenner, Louis Anderson, Rita Runder, Carrot Top, 30 comics, Howie, Howie Mandel, uh, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And they would all, how can you go see Bobby Slate? You're at Hooters watching this idiot. 
And it was brilliant. <laughs> that was your and opening act. It was my, well, I actually had an opening act also, but for people who didn't know who I was, it was such a, a nice thing. Yeah. Well, Alice Cooper and Jay Leno and Robin Williams. And Gives you credibility. Who, who did you have open for you at the club? I had a guy named Robert Duchesne, who was a, a great friend of mine. Opening, but I had a few comics come by and open up. You know, it's funny when people find out you have a room, how many people call you? Oh, Bobby, yeah. just stop by to say hello. <laughs> oh, by the way, here's my video if you need an oh, opener. Yeah. You know, people I haven't talked to in years. But what oh, George was saying is, you know, the, the least amount of your energy is at performing and writing new material because you have to be a businessman. He said that's what was so hard about mm -hmm. it. It was, but Hooters put me up. They gave me a beautiful uh, 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 condo next door. This lasted for two years. And like I said, most comics had to put, and then we started doing these uh, monthly lunches with the mayor, Oscar Goodman, who was the old mob lawyer. Mm -hmm. And me and uh, Anthony Cools, the great hypnotist, and and and, uh, and David Brenner and George Wallace and Carrot Top and Penn Gillette. Once a month, maybe once in a couple of weeks, we'd have a comedian's lunch. And a guy comedians only. It was like the it's like the Rat Pack. It was like the Friars Club. Rita Rudner could not come. Not, <laughs> sorry, no broad. No and No agents, no managers, just comedians. <laughs> but we have a big lunch and we'd always get a great picture in the paper of the Smothers Brothers and Penn Gillette and Bobby Flame and, and the mayor. And we'd always have a great lunch. So, you know, all these little things that I had to do <clears throat> to try to get asses in the seats and it, it worked. But it, but it was a like lot you, of work. You know, you had, had natural skill as a marketer. You could, you were coming up with, with concepts that worked. But it was really a lot of work. Yeah. But then again, I, I had 23 hours a day where I wasn't doing anything. So... You know, you know Carrot Top is the punchline of a lot of jokes. And then I, I never respected Dice as much as I did. Do you remember what he said on the, the Comedy Central roast for William Shatner? And instead of roasting William Shatner, all the comics are coming up because Carrot Top was on the dais and they're making fun of Carrot Top. So Dice is like seventh in line. Did you see this, Bobby? And Dice comes out and Dice he said, let me tell you something about you losers out here. And he goes, he said, Carrot Top has been, had, had a Vegas uh, uh, residency for longer than anybody else at the Luxor. He's made more money than every one of you assholes. You should all shut up. And it was great. It got like a standing ovation because he, he really is a guy that turned it into a huge industry in that town. Well, you know, Carrot Top, like you said, was a big punchline. And my wife and I, look, I, you know, I work five days a week. So I, when my, my two nights a week in Vegas that I was off, I was just telling somebody today, I, I'd finish my show Sunday night at 10 o'clock. I'd get in my car. I'd get home at 2 a.m. My daughter would be on the couch with a boyfriend watching a movie, didn't want anything to do with me. My wife would be sleeping, going, you smell like garlic. Get away from me. And my dog would bark. But I, I'm glad I came home to see these people. And then I turned around and I'd drive back again Wednesday. But once in a while, I would stay in Vegas and, uh, you know, I go see a show or two and you know, catch up with friends. And one night my wife and I went to see Carrot Top and it was like watching the Three Stooges. You're sitting there going, this is so stupid, but I'm, you're laughing. And yeah. he knows it's stupid, it's entertaining. but it's funny. It's yeah. creative. It's, um, it's great. And like you said, he's and he there. made major money and he did it. He's been doing it. Honest to God, like 20 years at the Luxor, right? Yes. He, he knows he who his audience is and he knows how to, how to make them happy. And it can be little kids. It can be 90 year old people and everybody's laughing. He's like, uh, he's like going to Disneyland. It's like watching he's, the Ed Sullivan he's show. You know, he's, he's you know, every act. I'm not, I'm not a religious man by any means, but when you're up in Vegas and it's Passover and uh, Carrot Top's manager, his parents are having a, a Seder 
at, at their house. And I go, I'm not into any of this crap. You know, I, <laughs> I eat bread. I'm not a matzo guy. You know, I, since I got bar mitzvah, I'm not into any of this. <laughs> hey, you know, you should come to my house. So I, I go to his parents' house, and it's like 10 Jews in the Amicus and me and Carrot Top. And his, <laughs> his, his shit's a hooker-looking girlfriend. Whatever. <laughs> it was great. Best pass I've ever had. <laughs> Well, do you have any Bob Saget stories? You know, we're here today to honor to honor and tribute uh, Bob Saget. So, does anyone here have any, especially? Um... Well, finally getting around to Saget. You know, well, when you emailed yeah, me. I did. That was the first thing we were supposed to do, and uh, and I don't want to talk about myself, but Fritz is busy asking questions. By yep. the way, Saget loved Mark Thompson, his favorite weatherman on Fox News. He never liked you, Fritz. No, I know that. But yeah, we had, had a connection because we both looked like junior stuff. college professors. Yeah, yeah, that's that's stop on name of Fritz. He was never I know. That's right. Well, listen, I listen. I was on the radio in Buffalo, New York, and my boss, uh, who is a very, I'll just call him an aware Jew, he said, I, I like your talent. You're very talented, but there's nobody ever that's going to be on my air that's going to call himself Fritz. Nobody's going to sound like a Nazi camp guard on my radio station. So he made me change my name to Jay Fredericks. So I changed my name to Jay Fredericks. My, sounds like one a- of my best friends in high school was Fritz. I remember when he came in fourth grade, he wrote his name on the board. <laughs> Natalie, everybody laughed. And I, I like this guy. Jay Fredericks sounds like both. a guy with a clothing line, though. Yeah. I have no faggot stories okay. except for the fact that you know, when I read all those accolades about him, it was nothing I didn't know. You know, you saw everybody, Billy Crystal and Steve Martin, everybody talking about what a great guy he was. Nobody did not like Bob Saget. Yeah. He was just, and I, you know what? I didn't see him that often because I, I, I only see comics when I go out to the comedy clubs and I don't go out to the comedy clubs mm-hmm. very much. Even when I was doing stand-up, because like I said, I was on the road every week. When I'm home, it's the last thing I want to do is go to a comedy club. Right. But every time I go to the Comedy Magic Club, I run into Bob. And for for six years, we're talking about having a dinner together. And uh, it never happened. It hasn't happened. Well, I, I have a tribute to Bob about it's also kind of like themed in things that did not happen. So this is basically the, this is Bob's responses to whatever the hell I had ever asked of him. Uh, so this is... Uh, you know, Bob Saget was the kind of person who, even if he wanted nothing to do with you, he was very nice about it. Here's a montage of email responses from Bob Saget, circa 2005 to 2009. I love you. Can't do a Saturday for a long time. I'm directing a movie and writing a show for HBO. I'm happy and ADD and sorry. Can't do it. Sorry. Love, Bob. I'd love to, but can't do anything till July or August ever as I'm directing a movie that takes 25-9 of my life and I do a gig now and then at a theater, college, or club and miss my kids terribly. So sorry, just definitely can't. Can't drive anywhere till this movie's done. Face of the Penguins take off of March movie narrated by Samuel Jackson. Sending my love and thanks. Thinking of me. Love, Bob. He did get a plug in there, didn't he, though, in your email response? This, You know, the listening audience is me. Podcasts? Wow. Where they play and how. Truth be known, I won't be free till January, but thanks for the invite. Sending you props and podcasts. Kudos, Bob. Thanks. Then I'm all about the podcasting. Soon as I have a C, I'm all out about it. Yay. Damn, I miss everything these days. Off to a New York to do press for my film. Thanks for invite, though, and belated Happy New Year, Bob. Love you, too. Not available for anything till September at best. Sorry. Good problems, Bob. 
Problems meaning work, no time for life, and the stuff that lasts. Hi, Louise. Sounds like a nice thing for for sure. Just can't do it this week. I'm silly busy, which is great. Just not ideal for doing nice things like, well, a lot of things. So sending you my best. Thanks for thinking of me, Bob. So cool. Good to hear. Can't make it. Lots of mazel tov, Bob. You know, I wish I would have. I got to file some of those away for the next time you want me to do your podcast. <laughs> I should just make these available in a spreadsheet for anybody. Who- get out of this today. I was sitting in my backyard. I was working on one of my guitars, which is if you come over, you'll see what I'm making. What here. are you making? Custom guitars? Talk about that. Well, my girlfriend's, you'll come over, you'll see it. My girlfriend's going to sell them in her store. She's got a, uh, my girlfriend, Dominique Cohen. I can plug her. Beautiful jewelry store in Palm Springs, a Palm Desert at Beverly Hills. She's a beautiful jeweler. And, uh, and I can plug Skechers, who I do commercials for now. And only wear sketches because they're the best shoes. Nice plug. I want all your imaginary listeners to buy sketches. Go to Dominique We're going to close up the show, Bobby, and then we're going to walk across the street and take some pictures with you in in the middle of the road. So uh, let me get. Are you not going to come in the house? No, that's the whole point. I'll come in the house. What do you not get about COVID? I'm not coming in the house. Fritz can go. I've had my shot. So you don't go anywhere? You're afraid to go anywhere? Bobby. I, I have a 92-year-old mother, and I have to eat dinner with her in the backyard with, like, a tiny propane heater. This is us trying to just make it through this Omicron. I have already have it. I'm not going to catch anything. He just, he's just had the, the, the uh, Omicron. He may still be contagious. If you want to invite him into your house, be my guest. But I'm I need contagious. you to come outside and pose for a picture with us. Oh and that God. way the air uh, will continue uh, to mingle. Uh, All right. What if I open the garage and you go look at the drums? <laughs> yeah, do that. I'll hold my <laughs> we'll breath be over and there run. in 10 minutes. I'm going to hold my breath and run through your house, Bobby. All right. So Fritz is going to tell everybody how they can review our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners if you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new here and this is your first time with us, check out our back catalog. There's all kinds of binge-worthy stuff on there. Thank you for spending an hour with us, and we would be overjoyed if you took a moment to share your thoughts with us or recommend us to a friend. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. What's the name of our Facebook group, Dina? Can I go now? Yeah, you can go. Yeah, open the garage door. We'll be right over. So we have a new Facebook group called Media Path Facebook Community with Fritz and Wheezy. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying. You can contact us at our social media or email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank... Our guest, Bobby Slayton. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path. But if you want to sell these for seventy thousand dollars, you know, they took they took me month, it takes me like a month to make it. Will you take the blues one and then send me the picture? Yeah. Where, where do you want me to do Jesus, man, those are beautiful. It, but you know, they're very fragile. It's a lot of It's gonna have to hang around. Oh, can I see the back? Yeah, well that's what's gonna happen. They're real, but they're a tremendous amount of work. I'm like a mental patient when I start doing one of these.